I used to define myself as a director. I realise in my in my head that's what I was. And then more recently, I've realised that just a bloke who goes out and walks his dog, and occasionally goes and does bits of television or filming. And it's important. It's a it's a small statement, but it's a very important difference that I'm not, you know, it's what you define yourself as and, and I think it's dangerous to define yourself as your what your career is and not be not just yourself. Hello and welcome to Where Creatives Connect. My name is Jamie Sharp and this is the podcast that brings you the behind the scenes of creators from all walks of life, whether they be directors, actors, musicians, poets, dancers, you name it. I'll have them on here and I'll do my very best as a brand new interviewer to dig out the golden goodies behind the scenes of their processes, their lives and their journeys. Today, I am very excited. I'm a little nervous, but I'm very excited. and gra- <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very grateful, very nervous, very excited to have on David Innes Edwards. You don't know it yet, but he has shaped and directed more TV than you than you know over the last three or four decades including Casualty, Holby City, New Tricks, The Dumping Ground, At Home with the Braithwaites, The Bill, Heartbeat, Pie in the Sky, Playing the Field, Liverpool One, Born and Bred, Brookside, EastEnders, Waterloo Road, to name but a few. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. For the people that don't know you, apart from my introduction there, this question is for them. If you um, say you're on the train to Cardiff, this weekend, and somebody was chatting away to you about what you do for a living. Yeah. What's your go-to? Well, I generally don't offer up what I do because it it, it can lead to hours of conversation, you know, or, or I, I don't like to sound a bit show-offy sometimes, you know, mm. I work in television, you know, it's <laughs> kind of... So I don't really offer it up, but if people ask, then I'm quite happy to, to tell them what I do. And... and Reactions vary a lot, you know. Um, I think really most people don't have much of a clue what a director does mm. for a start, but they think they do. <laughs> so, you know. Do you find if you drop the name of what you're working on, say it's Holby City or yeah. Casualty, if they are a keen watcher, do they have quite a um, a vivid reaction about, say, the storyline or... Do they come at you yeah, a little often bit? Yeah, they do. And and the, what I find quite a lot is it's kind of a lot of people's guilty pleasure. So mm. the first thing they tend to say is, oh, I don't watch that. I don't watch that. <laughs> and then give you the last 10 years storyline in, in great detail. So clearly they do watch it. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Take me back. 10-year-old David growing up, whether it be primary school or high school, were there any creative opportunities that you felt shaped you into the road you've you've walked since i knew i was coming to chat to you it i've thought about the process and what i do and and it's quite hard because you don't really generally analyze what you do as you go along and and actually thinking being forced to think about it in a way is quite a good thing because you you start to analyze your process you know yeah but also that part of the history, what made me go into it in the first place. And 
I did have a, a, a primary school teacher called Mrs. Back who encouraged us in drama and, you know, put on school plays. And, and I absolutely loved it, you know. That was at the age of 10, you know. And then into secondary school, I always was involved in the school plays and did lots of acting. Ah, so you were a performer yeah. as, as a yeah. youth? Ah. Yeah, initially, yeah. So And, and then at college, um, I did a, a humanities course, which was drama and English, but all the English modules I chose were all drama-related as well. So I did an awful lot of acting there and, and did consider it as a career briefly and then decided that I wasn't really good enough as an actor <laughs> and that, you know... I didn't want to end up as a kind of out of work struggling actor. I wanted to, you know, really make a career or something. And and uh, I thought at that stage that stage management in theatre would be the way to go. So mm. I didn't know anybody in television. I had no idea how to kind of enter the world, you know. But I did theatre. So that was going to be my next question: yeah. is was there anybody you were able to access uh, through? television or watching local theatre that you could see ah that's that's somebody that I might want to aspire to be like as you were growing up yeah not not really I mean you know they were there, there was a lecturer at college called Bill who who had been a, a stage manager and just the tales he told about working on shows you know as stage managing um, and music videos and all sorts that he'd done before he'd become a college lecturer and and it, I, I was just spellbound by that you know I thought that's it that's what I want to do so the last thing I did at, at college was a Edinburgh festival we, we took a piece up to the Edinburgh festival as a, as a part of the college and I got to know another theatre group that were in the same building as us we were sharing up in Edinburgh and they kept coming saying oh we, we need this prop making and we need a bit of scenery fixing and Dave could you help us out you know mm. which I did um, and the, the show won a fringe first and then transferred to the West End and they said oh would you come and help us out there too so wow. I, I, I did um, it was at the Arts Theatre and I ended up helping to build the set getting get do all the get in and, and then they said oh it was all a bit shambolic you know and they said <laughs> we, we haven't got a DSM would you like to do it? And I said, yeah, of course. course. You know? Yeah, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Brilliant. So um, there I was doing all the lighting and sound cues and so on in the wings of uh, of, of the arts theatre. Um, so dropped into the deep end quite yeah, quickly Yeah, absolutely there. straight into the deep end. I'd never done it before. And you were, would have been 17, 18? Uh, I, by then I was kind of 20, 20. 21, I think, okay. something like that. So... That gave me my kind of first professional experience. Well, hardly professional. I wasn't really paid, but, you know, <laughs> it, it was West End. It yeah. was, you know, a decent show as well. So, And then a friend of my mother's got the BBC internal newspaper called The Aerial, and in it was an advert for a job called Assistant Floor Manager, which I read the description. I thought, I don't know, I could do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I phoned. There was a telephone number at the bottom and I phoned it. And um, little did I know that that job was actually, you know, way above what I was capable of. It was, you know, two or three years of experience in television and, and so on. But the the uh, the manager called me in for an interview and and then said, right, well, we're, we're not going to offer you that job, but we'll give you a three months contract as a runner. 
Ah, okay. And so I they was gave off. you a leg in. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, that's it. It's television. You know, I didn't know anybody, as I say, and this all had come about through a friend of my mother's who was um, the construction buyer at Pinewood Studios, and she lived opposite. So there's always somebody, you there's know. Somebody. Who, there's a net, network Somebody who knows, and, and they're just, you know. And so she encouraged you to go for it, or did she... Uh, sorry, was she the person who gave you the job advert? No. no. Oh, the advert. Yeah, 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 just the advert. And then I did the rest myself. So wow. I was living in a little bedsit in Muswell Hill at the time, and I, I phoned the BBC from a phone box in, in Muswell Hill. Which wow. I always, I always, whenever I go past now, I look at that phone box and I think, wow. That's that where was, it all started. It all started There's there, a yeah. short in that, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the, the, Marcia Wheeler was the manager of drama, series and serials at the time and she said that um, she was looking for a runner uh, and couldn't find didn't have anybody and couldn't find anybody that was suitable um, and the phone rang and it was me from this phone box in, in Muswell Hill so wow. she said she felt there was something in it you know which was why she got me in that's brilliant and yeah. was that to work on one specific show or was that to work yeah. across all no, well, in the end it was, but that was just a three-month contract to start with on a series called Give Us a Break. Uh, it was about a snooker, young snooker player with um, Robert Lindsay and Paul McGann. Okay. And as a runner, your your tasks really are to look after the artists, you know, make sure that they arrive on set in a good mood at the right time, ready to go, you know. I suppose... A lot relies on you to make sure the inner workings are all happy and yeah. comfortable yeah. in between yeah. shoots. And it was all location, all in West London, all in kind of snooker halls and, and so on, and uh, various locations all around West London. So I had to, logistically, you know, you had to make sure you knew where you were going, and it was, you know, before the days of sat-navs and things, so it all had to be studied and worked out. And Paul McGann was a bit of a nightmare in terms of getting him even out of bed in the morning. so And that was your responsibility? Yeah, so the BBC oh, wow. gave me a car that I could drive from Muswell Hill down to where he lived in Kentish Town and throw stones at his window <laughs> and, you know, get him up. Wow. And uh, and then deliver him to the location, you know, where it then I'd make sure he went through costume and makeup and had his breakfast and was happy. Really looking him. after him? Yeah. Yeah. And then deliver him to the set, uh, and, and the other artists as well. But, I mean, Paul Paul was one of the leads. And Robert Lindsay was very, you know, organised and well. You know, he, he was much easier, really, to deal with. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, I was thinking about that. Paul McGann, then, that was prior to With Nail and I. So he was, you know, a young kind of upcoming actor, but he hadn't done With Nail, so he wasn't. You know, the legend that he became. But I didn't work with him again until about three years ago. And he, he had a regular part in, in Holby City for a season where he played Gaskell, who was a kind of um, evil doctor that was experimenting on people. And when I met him again after 40 years, you know, <laughs> I, I, I thought he won't remember. So... I said hello to him, bumped into him in a corridor, I said hello. And I said, I don't know if you remember, Paul, you know, all that, all those years ago. Mm. He said, hang on a minute, and he disappeared. <laughs> and he said, I'll be back. Ah. And a couple of minutes later, he came back with a 
a book of Yeats poems, right? Um, and he opened the front and he said, "Look, there's your handwriting." No way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and wow. he kept that book. That was his, obviously his kind of muse, you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he used to dip in and read a bit of Yeats just to get you know, get in the zone. Get in the zone. Wow. And I'd written a note to him in the front of it, and he kept it all those years, and he remembered that it was me and my. And he had it on him. On he had it whilst then, working. All Gosh. those years later, still, yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. It's lovely, isn't that it? That is I, so lovely. Yeah, yeah. And you hadn't worked at all Not in between? seen him or, or, or anything for all those years in between, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you find that across your career you have uh, similar experiences where you've worked with somebody for a long stint of time, then you don't see them for a number of years, yeah. but then you're able to reconnect further down the line? And yeah, that often happens. And, and quite a lot of actors that you... You, you you build a kind of company of your own, you know, of trusted people that you love working with. And so you kind of recast and, and you know, and others that perhaps go on to such big stuff that you'll never get them again, you yeah, know, for yeah. the kind of scale of stuff I'm doing, you know. Yeah. Um, I did uh, series two of Waterloo Road. And um, I cast young Jack O'Connor in that. He was only 15. And it was really good. I mean, mm. I, I just, it was raw, you know, uh, and I thought, this boy's good, I'm going to cast him. And and he did a really good episode. And then, of course, he went on to massive stuff, you know, in Hollywood and so on. So so has you, part of your role within uh, directing also been on the casting front as well and spotting new talent? and Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. So that's part of the process that you always do, you know, when you, when you sit down and start a job. Um, the preparation period is is as vital as the shoot period, really, mm -hmm. and part of that is casting. So, the, the you'll always be working with a casting director who will bring in people and you interview them. You know, and of course, it's all been done on Zoom in the last few years, but mm. it was always face to face before that. And I think it will return to that. I hope, but I'm not sure really whether you know it, it does save an awful lot of travel and time for people. So, of course. You know, um, but there's nothing quite like meeting in person. Face to face. It, it just your instinct, you know, it, whether somebody is going to be good on camera. You're, you're, you you do in the end a mixture of experience and and instinct. You you can choose people that you know, and then bam on camera that off they go. Yeah, so. and, and I suppose there would be an argument that if you're seeing them on Zoom, they are on camera, but that's not. All you have to do, you have to work with the actual human, the yeah. person, and and yeah. uh, make sure that that's well, all. You see, part of that is if they're doing a self tape, then and they they've been asked to play a character, then clearly that's what they're going to give you. Mm. But when you meet somebody in a room, you can see what they like as a person, and then that then you'll see their performance, and that's a big clue as to their kind of versatility. You mm. know that they may be playing a character and they're able just to slip into a character that they've invented which you don't get to see if you just see the presentation that they give you know so I much prefer a face to face again you can get somebody who delivers a fantastic audition um, and then that's exactly what you get on camera but no different to that you know whereas the best actors are, are much more versatile so you know, they'll give you a, a good base performance, but then you can go in and tweak and you can give notes and you can just enhance it, you know, until you get something electrifying, you know. So, 
When you were as a runner and doing various jobs, for, was it around seven years you were at the BBC before you embarked on the directing? Uh, it was actually about nine in the end. I, I, for, I started directing at the end of 91, I think. So, yeah, it was about nine years. But, but it was different then because I got a staff job at the BBC. There was a structure um, that I could work through and I got trained in each step before I was allowed to actually go on and do it. Um, which doesn't exist now. People don't do training, you know. You just have to go out, try and get experience, and then hope that somebody gives you a break into the next stage on the production process, you know, the next job. Why do you think that has dismantled? Why do you think there isn't a, a through line or a route through? It's probably cost, down to costs in the end, you know. The, the BBC was willing to spend money on training and... Uh, you know, I, I learned from some amazing people in, in production, you know, who'd, who'd floor managed live drama and things like that, you know. And there's nothing quite as kind of terrifying as hearing 30 seconds to transmission in your ear, you know. But your heart's it's, pounding. Yeah, you know, there it's going out live. Um, and, they, they, you know, the BBC often used to do live drama and they've experimented with it over the last few years, you know, doing... They did a live episode of The Bill, which I didn't direct, but I was there at The Bill at the time. And um, logistically, it was huge, you can imagine, you know, how many cameras that, and sound recordists and, you know... Yeah. They were very ambitious with it. It was good. It was good, and it worked very well. Except they, they had to do a stunt with a car where they, they were trying to tip it on its roof and then play the next few scenes with the two actors trapped in the car upside down. And the, the stuntman didn't quite make the role and, and the car ended up back on its wheels. So. Oh, no. <laughs> and this is going out live. You can't, you know. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Quick, change the storyline. He's yeah. fine, he's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that shows you why people don't do live drama really anymore, you know. Yeah. Was the idea of doing a, another live drama on the bill there just a, an experiment, or is it... Yeah, it was just a one-off. They only did it once. I mean, it was too big a, a kind of project to, to do on a regular basis, but somebody decided it would be a good thing to do, you know. So Fair play to Yeah, them. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But those production jobs that I did, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the time, mm. you know, of, of working in, in you know, shows like Lovejoy and Spender and, you know... All, all over the country and some bits abroad, not very much, but I did a week um, in Venice on, on Lovejoy. Um, so I thoroughly enjoyed it, but it, what it did was allowed me to observe other directors at work, you know. So the first director I worked with on, on that show, um, Give Us a Break, that I mentioned. Yes. It was called David Reynolds, and he was really... I, I didn't know anything about television or or the fact that you there were even directors in television that that, that stuff was shot on film all on location you know you don't think of television like that really. of course you just see the end product and yeah. enjoy it for what it is yeah so there i was kind of thrown into all this and but as a runner able to stand back and observe how people worked you know so i saw david reynolds and i thought that's the job for me yeah. So <laughs> that's was one. it key figures like him yes. that set your eyes on yeah. on that's where you want to end up? That's it. 
I was, what, 23. He, he must have been 35 at the time, but he smoked a pipe. And <laughs> a real character. And laid back, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the actors loved him, you know. Uh, he, he didn't owe, give many notes, but he did give very specific, really good little notes for, for performances. And the actors absolutely adored him. And we used to go to Lime Grove when, when that was still a studio. And, and when the episodes had all been edited together, they used to do a, a crew showing, you know. So we'd sit there and, and view his episode through and then go and have a drink. And, you know, it was great. And some of the other directors that came on to that series, they just didn't have what David had, had as, mm. a, as a director. They... Um, there was one, I won't say his name, but he was a, he followed a, a, a kind of religious cult, um, a, a bag one, I can't remember what it was called, but he dressed all in orange. Oh. He had a big beard and, a, and a beads with a picture of this bag one around his neck. Wow. And, uh, I need to see this yeah, chap. Yeah, <laughs> so he was I'll another... i here on the camera. <laughs> he was another director who did, you know, a, a couple of episodes in that series. But... He was a strange man, and he used to meditate on certain things, you know. Oh, okay. Get down on his knees in the middle of a snooker hall and start. Oh wow! Bringing the attention the... right to him. Yeah, you could see the actors looking at him like, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> and and then so we'd go for viewings of his episodes, and they were as dull as anything. Interesting. By comparison to David, are you able to when you watch? watch any TV series, are you able to know or notice when it changes from director to director? Yeah, I can. Quite, yeah. I can. I, I, I think most people will, probably won't, you mm. know. But they'll know something's different. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a really hard thing to quantify, really, why why some, some directors just get the best out of people and others get what is expected. What tends to happen, and most people obviously in SC have experienced it won't know this, is that a whole unit will take on the character of the director. So you're very much front and centre, you know, as a director, you're you're right up there. Um, and the and the unit will take on the like a bigger version of, of the character of the director. It's mm. hard to explain, but I've seen it so many times over the years. And so if you've got kind of character faults <laughs> They will show, you know. Oh, interesting. So you're yeah. setting the energy and the workflow. Very of, much. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. The first series of Lovejoy, I, I was, my job then, I'd moved up from being a runner to being an assistant floor manager. And so I was dealing with all the props and the action props, which was brilliant on Lovejoy. You can imagine it was all dealing with antiques and, and things, you know. <coughs> but there was a director who's had a massive influence on me in my career called Baz Taylor. He, brilliant man um, and, and one of the funniest people I've ever worked with. And he had us all in stitches all the way through the shoot. But what he did was the kind of charm that he has as a man was infused into the programme, you know. And again, other directors who did other, other episodes of, of Lovejoy, I, I know it, most people don't because they'll be watching Ian McShane and Dudley Sutton and, you know, mm -hmm. or, or, uh, Phyllis Logan and, you know, enjoying their performances. But I can see the difference and I know why one episode is, is just a delight to watch and, and another one is okay, but it just doesn't have that charm. See what I mean? It's down uh, to that. Totally. It? And how, or well, whose job is it then to 
pick and choose the directors? Uh, is it a producer? Yeah, that would pick, yeah, pick producer, producer or executives now. The, mm. the the whole kind of chain of command has changed over the time I've been doing it. Producers were were used to be hired and you know get on with it, put the melting pot together and. But now it tend, you know, there's executive producers. If you look at credits for TV shows now, there's often four or five screens worth of executive producers <laughs> now. And are they likely to be directors themselves or past directors? Possibly, but mm. often not. Mm. No, no, often not. There is that the, the kind of saying in, in the industry that everybody wants to be a director or thinks they can be. <laughs> Talk me through your directing process. So, from the moment you get a call or an email to say you're gonna you're wanted on set, yeah. Um, I imagine there's a preamble of getting the script to you, understanding who you're working with. Then you've got the shoot itself, and then post as well. Yeah. Are you involved across all of that? Yeah, the whole thing. So when you start. Either you get your script beforehand or you'll get it when you start and you, you carefully read through. I, I always find that the first read is really important for, a, for any script because it gives you the the general feel, you know, yeah. not the detail. You just take in the, the, the essence of the what essence it is. and the emotions yeah. of what, what the writer's after. Mm. And so you'll sit and you'll kind of make notes and they'll, they'll often go through several drafts before, you know, tweaking with producers and script editors and, and so on. Um, until until everybody's happy or you run out of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? Do you have much dialogue with the writers uh, during their... Sometimes, you... depends, you know. Some some writers are, are kept away deliberately mm. um, and, and uh, others, it's you know, you can just phone them up and say, what do you mean by this? You know, mm. Would it mm. be better if we did this instead? And they'll say, no, oh, I'm not changing it. Or, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can, you know, it, it varies. Some, some writers over the years, I've had really good close working relationships with. So that there's that process. Uh, there's the casting. So you're you're doing casting sessions, um, either you know either face to face or, or or through Zoom, getting your cast together for your guest actors. If you know, like on Holby uh, or, or Casualty, there's a, a strong core of kind of regular actors, and then you're you're casting your guests for your episodes. On other stuff that I've done, you you're starting from scratch. You know, you're you're having to cast the whole the whole thing. So that's a really vital part of the process. Um, and then you're going out and looking for locations. You know, it's very time-consuming. Absolutely. I imagine that can take days and weeks of time. It can, it wow. can. And, and location finds is a bit like um, buying a house, you know. You go and look for five minutes and you think, yeah, this is great, this will do us. But you've no idea... What the implications? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's when the local Tesco like? Who knows? You find, you know, there was one I went to um, in central London. It was a club that uh, a friend of mine had a, a, a close pal who, who ran it, and and he said, "Oh yeah, they're, they're happy to, you know, for you to come and recce and perhaps use it as a location." And we went on an evening, and it was open, and there were people. There was music playing, and there were. And it was great, you know. It was a really good location, and I said, "Yeah, fine. I'd love to shoot here." And we arranged it all and everything. It wasn't until we turned up on the camera recce, which mm. you always go to before you start shooting, mm -hmm. that, that that we found out that there was a tube line right outside the main window. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so, so did you have to shoot in between yeah, the trains? Yeah. Oh, and it gosh. was too late to change by then. You know, we'd, 
sound-wise, that is oh, just what a, a nightmare. nightmare. The frequency of trains as well is just a rumble. Yeah, oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. Oh, that sends chills down my spine. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you've got to be careful, you know, when, you, when, when you're doing that. And, mm. and anyway, so that, that then hopefully you've got all your locations, you've got all your cast, your script is, is as good as it's ever going to be. Um, and as a director, you, your prep varies an awful lot. You know, uh, depending on on the show, really. And when I first started, I used to prep everything. Mm. Um, things like Brookside, they um, actually required a, a shot list that you had to print out and give to everybody, so that all the crew, so that they all knew exactly what setups you were going to do. Um, and not many shows asked for that, really. But but I did. It was my first. Brookside was my first freelance job as a director um and i did a year and a half in the end there and by the end of that it was my i was like think of it as my kind of apprenticeship really because it, it, it built my confidence to a point where you know say i'd been walking down the road and, and a runner came out and said our director's just collapsed can you come and take over i could step in read a scene and say right this is what we're going to do yeah you know you, you had the fluency then yeah from working for a year yeah. and a half as a freelance director do you get a contract that says we need you for a year and a half or do we need you for this many episodes or do they see if they like you after a couple of episodes? They do. I mean, the Brookside was six monthly, so they renewed it a couple of times, mm. which is why I stayed there so long. Um, and it was partly because uh, at the BBC, people were always known for what they did and not what they do now. Ah, <laughs> you know? I had been a first assistant, you know, uh, production manager at the BBC. And I thought, I need to get away from there so that I can come back as a director. Mm -hmm. you know? There was a designer, fully-fledged designer at the BBC, whose nickname was The Painter, because he'd been a scenic artist when he started. And that's what he was remembered as. <laughs> Always known no for, forever more as The Painter. So, you know, it, it sticks. was a peculiar thing. Yeah, <laughs> it was. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I did, I managed a year and a half and then, and then, came back to the BBC and did some work as a director on Casualty, uh, which, you know, got, got me a step up out of the kind of half-hour format of continuing drama and into 50 minutes, and that's quite a big, important step, really, in terms of a career. Mm. Um, a big influence on me in my early days as a director was a, a show called um, Edge of Darkness, the original Edge of Darkness with Bob Peck in it, and it, it was shown us i think it was probably 1984 or five something like that and it just blew me away when i first saw it it was incredible martin campbell directed it who went on to do bonds and all sorts of things but this was um his his kind of one of his final telly pieces and it was all shot on a long lens this is partly what i, I wanted to talk about today really is your kind of technical knowledge you know that you need to build up as, yep. as you go as a director because you need to have, uh, I, I think, a balance between a technical knowledge and an artistic interpretation of mm -hmm. stuff, you know, and, and the two should be balanced. Because you quite often hear people, be, you know, directors described as a, an actor's director. In, you know, in other words, they are brilliant with the cast, but will leave the crew to do all the shooting you know, so they're the a people's person but they'll leave the technicalities yeah. away I'm with you. or they're a technical director and and they just leave the actors to get on with mm. it 
in my mind, you should be able to do both well because it's, it's pointless getting the best performance in the world if you're not getting the right shot to capture it. And, uh, you know, do you see what's happening? Totally. And would you say that your jobs leading up to directing gave you a good grounding in what's required from the different roles so that you yeah. can be a, a, an actor's director, a people's person and a technical yeah. person all, all in one? All those jobs in, in production that I went through, you know, as a location manager, as an assistant floor manager, uh, first assistant and so on, they just allowed me to observe other directors working and kind of cherry pick, you know, the... Mm what works and what I think didn't work. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, and you, you build up your experience and your approach then from that, you see what I'm saying? Yes. You know, it, I imagine you can also either make or break your crew. If you know how their jobs work, you can make sure that there's enough time for everybody to, to get their jobs done yeah. or enough space or if they need to be left alone, you're able to cater that and, and carve that yeah. out or... Or, or the opposite. Yeah. Well, what I was saying about you, you know, directors' personalities infusing the crew. I, I've seen directors over the years who are kind of control freaks, you know, and so they won't do anything unless it was their idea. Quite a lot of big, well-known directors work in that way, and and they're kind of famous for being brilliant, and, and you know, but they won't take a suggestion from anybody else, uh, even if it's brilliant, you know. What I observed was that the directors who allowed suggestions to come from, you know, you've got 50 people, experienced people around you, um, and they will, if allowed to, they'll throw in some fantastic ideas. Seems ridiculous to me not to... To use you that. You know, use, yeah. the, use those ideas. And, and uh, you know, and uh, if you can create the right atmosphere where you can say, it's a great idea, but I don't think it's appropriate for, for this situation mm -hmm. we're in. They won't take offence and they'll, you know, but they'll pipe up something else the next day or later that day or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. If there if there's that atmosphere, and that's what I observed with that director Baz Taylor on on, on Lovejoy, um, you know, when I was I was doing the props, and other directors I'd worked with wanted fine detail about, you know, and I want this and I want it to be that colour and I want it to be, and I went to Baz with this list of requirements for, for props and he said oh you decide and then show me and I thought wow he's giving you the free he's reign he's me then. ownership of that yeah. yeah and and so I I felt really much more part of the creative process by him being like that and it wasn't him being lazy he did it wasn't because he didn't know what he wanted it, he just he wanted me to bring my contribution to it and he treated every member of the crew like that and because of that, everybody felt so much more involved with it and, and delivered their best, best work, I think. Whereas the control freaks, people tend to just clam up, you know, because they know that their suggestion's not going to be taken, so that they won't offer it up in the first place. And you, I think as a director, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, you know? Absolutely. You worded it perfectly, that there are so many experienced people in the room, why wouldn't you find a way of coaxing out the good elements yeah. of them? And that's yeah. a, a massive skill in itself, just being able to communicate that to people. Yeah. yeah. As a director, I imagine, particularly on the shows you've been on, there are a number of different scenarios like um, car crashes, murders, uh, love, giving birth, the real extremes of life. Yeah. How have you dealt with, say, a murder 
in the past or directing a murder if you've not experienced one firsthand? Well, it's you're you're a storyteller first and foremost, so you don't have to have experienced everything in order to tell that story. True. I think. Um, uh, and I have done murders. I did um, a couple of episodes of a series called Murder in Mind, um, uh, which was you know Lots all about murder. <laughs> you know that was the that was the point of it really. Um, but I and I, I remember having a dream that I'd murdered somebody once. Oh gosh! Very disturbing. <laughs> Should we talk very, about very it on the podcast? <laughs> I told my wife and I said, uh, I've had this dream, you know, I'd murdered somebody. And I, I went through all the feelings of guilt and, and panic and, or, you know, in the dream, woke up in a... In a real panic? Know, yeah, yeah. Wow. I, can't, I don't think it coincided with working on, on a show like Murder in Mind, but I said, it must go in, you know, it does yeah. have an effect on you. So you do... You do live these things, um, and you know, I, I, you know, I've got two children, and so I've kind of lived through births and you know marriages and a lot of real life experiences. So I can kind of advise people on how I think it should go, depending on what the script requirements are, really. But um, and and the the extremes of life, you know, as I say, you you are just a storyteller. Um, I had a funny um, experience on on a series called Maisie Rain, um, Pauline Quirk as a as a detective, and um, we had to the scene I, I was about to shoot in in a couple of days was a a full black funeral um, with a, a horse drawn hearse and and a and a, um, a procession okay. behind it. I used to stay with a pal of mine in, in his house in central London in, in a kind of room at the top, which I really enjoyed, you know. You yeah, were up yeah. in the... Up in the gods. Like Mary Poppins, you know. <laughs> and I was lying there one night and I thought, what, what music? What music is going to be right for this procession? And I, I, I suddenly heard in my head uh, Amazing Grace played on a single harmonica. harmonica mm. And I thought... Yeah, that would be atmospheric. That would be really good. But I, I didn't know whether it was appropriate, you know, whether it was a uh, a cliche or, or whether it would be bad taste or mm. whatever. So I thought, right, well, the following day we had a three-piece um, black jazz band with us. I thought, I'll ask one of them. They'll they'll know whether it's appropriate, which I did the following day. And they said, oh, you, you want to ask our, our lad who's helping us out? I, I, I took him aside and I said, he was about 19, this young man. Mm. And I said um, what the idea was. And he looked at me with such emotion in his eyes. And I thought, blimey, I, what, what have I hit on here? You know? Yeah. He said, um, he said, not only is it appropriate, but I was supposed to play my harmonica, Amazing Grace, for my mother at her funeral last week. And I forgot to take my harmonica. <laughs> oh wow yeah so i i said well look will you do it will you will you be in the scene be in part of the procession and and do and it and play it and wow. he said i can play it for my mother he was so overwhelmed you know with it. and i thought where's that come where, from yeah where, where have you pulled that? that from wow amazing yeah yeah so Gosh. you know experiences you don't 
as I say, you don't have to live them all. Some of them, it's your imagination. Some of it... You're tapping I mean, into... That, that, there's, some, there's something uh, um, about that experience that I thought, I don't, I don't begin to understand where... Where on earth that's well, come from. I'm just glad it did. Yeah, yeah. what a beautiful moment. Yeah, wow. Lovely. You mentioned he was 19, and you've worked with all age groups, including young people on the dumping ground. Yeah. Do you find your directing style has to change dramatically when you're working with young people or is it that they're no i, no? I really don't no um you know it's just just a difference of age really that the process is the same as working with adults and and you know good actors they they obviously they're less experienced so their skills are, are more varied some are, are hopeless and others are brilliant you know so really as a as a director you're your task is to try and balance them up and make them all appear nice and natural. I mean, the dumping ground in particular, because it's set in a children's home um, uh, and it, 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 all the characters are from very diverse backgrounds, I suppose the temptation is to, to as a director, to go in and become mates, you know, with them and try and... But I, I didn't want to do that because... I, I just wanted the process to be what I normally do and mm. that the the kind of respect that goes both ways between them and back to the director is earned, mm. you know. Um, so, I, 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 like, for example, the one that won, won the RTS award, the main story was um, is a, a young actor in it called Ruben Reuter who's Down syndrome. The weird thing is, after very little time of working with him you forget that he's down syndrome yeah you know um and you just see the person that they are you know behind the whatever disability they have and some of the others were varying degrees you know of uh either disability or learning difficulty or something you know mm. they're, they're, it's a very you, diverse cast it is yeah. yeah and but you just forget you just completely forget and, and you're just talking directly to the person now so Reuben, the story was that he invented a fantasy father, um, this, this one particular episode, because he'd never known his, who his real dad was. Mm -hmm. And he, so this, uh, this fantasy father was a brilliant footballer, you know, and, and would take him on, on the pitch at Anfield and, or Wembley or whatever, you know. And he would appear to Reuben's character and talk to him and give him advice and then, flip, you know, he'd disappear again. And the story of this episode was the father, he, he'd kind of gone on such a journey, the the boy, that the father in the end said, you don't need me anymore, son, and he disappeared and never returned. Wow. And Reuben was stunning. He was amazing, you know. To be able to tap into yeah. that. Gosh. Yeah. He, he, you know, all, all actors have, have varying degrees of, of kind of... Um, memory if you like of, of lines and so on and Reuben because it because of the Down syndrome he his memory is not great for, mm -hmm. for lines so we'd often have my first assistant was feeding him the line then he would repeat it you know we'd be shooting he would do that line then the offline would come and then he would have to be prompted for the next one but once prompted come he, he would deliver it really well mm. and then all we did in the edit was put it all back together and Bingo, you know, there was this fantastic performance. It was such a moving episode and uh, 
Yeah, it got a, an award for it. I've got a little shot of that later on I can, oh, yeah. I can come to. Yeah, yeah. When you have such a high frequency of turnover of shows or episodes and you have to chop between directors, is there a dialogue between directors about continuity of the essence of what's happening? You know, not just. I imagine the, the writers take care of the the through line of what's going on with each character yeah. and the the, the storyline, but is there a, a separate dialogue that happens between directors to make sure that it has the same feel all yeah, the way through? Yeah, th there is on continuing drama. You know, um, you know, like Casualty or Holby City or The Bill was, and you know, the the ones that just roll on. But obviously, the, the one-off things, like I, I did a um, a five-part modern adaptation of Nicholas Nickleby a few years ago, and um, I did all of it, you know, the whole lot. So I was in charge of the kind of through through journey for all of it. But on a continuing drama, then you'll you'll be picking up a storyline where where another director has left off, you know, mm. and um, yeah, you chat to each other and and you know take the baton on really. Yeah. I'm going to show you a clip now of Guy Henry in an interview and he mentions your directing style. <laughs> is that a do you have I'm going to show you a clip now of Guy Henry in an interview and he mentions your directing style Yeah. and I was on the Holby City programme for years for those who don't know Holby City was a medical drama on primetime BBC David Innes Edwards wonderful director and he will just come up and go yeah, just wondered if he if he doesn't like the tomato in that sandwich much you know, whatever, you know, I mean, he'll just, did he like his mother or not? I don't know. What do you think? Anyway, let's do another one. Okay. You know, and off you do, you go another one with a little different flavour of tomato, in fact, to it. So. <laughs> do you have your own techniques of, say, oh, that, that actor is going to work well if I just drop an idea to them, but that, that actor might work better if I really describe exactly what I'm after. Do you consciously choose the way in which you direct each actor or do you have your own i yeah again that that comes from observing other directors when i was going through all those production jobs and you know there are some directors who who will describe every detail of what they're after and I'd, as a first assistant, I'd stand there watching this note being delivered and the actor's eyes just glazing over. You know? <laughs> I've <laughs> got to remember all of yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the, the, but I found that the best, the best note givers were, were directors who came in with a very specific little note that just was like a key to the scene, you know, um, and would un un unlock the secret of it. And it's, you know, that's why a guy describes it as, as a tomato in a sandwich, is that perhaps the next, the next take, he, he was thinking about, you know, not only what he was saying 
for, for the, you know the, the lines he, he was supposed to give, but there was some other little nugget that he was thinking about, and suddenly that line comes out in such a natural way because it's not the kind of entire focus, which is often the way we are, isn't it? You're often thinking of two or three things at once as you're, you know, as we're doing now, as we give this interview, you know, we're there's all sorts of other stuff going on, so I. I I quite often give just a, a, a note which is not necessarily relevant to the, you know, the piece, but it just gives it another direction, uh, gives it another uh, pattern of thought for the actor, and and quite often um, you'll get something fresh in the next take from it. You know, I really like that. There's a director whose name does escape me. I might insert it later. Yeah. Here, um, who. I remember talking about inverting your intention. So you can go in, a, in as an actor with the idea as you need to deliver this line in a really angry manner. But w what's the opposite if you invert anger right. and you have love behind it? So you're saying it angrily, but you're saying it angrily because you love that person so much. And all of a sudden it can, like you said, unlock a whole, yeah. uh, you know, human element, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I, I had a an example of that on um, Born and Bread, um, mm. which was a kind of 50s period um, medical drama, Sunday night kind of light comedy and bit of drama, you know. It was it was a lovely piece, uh, lo lots of amazing characters in it. But the, the one of the leads in it was James Bolam, who I'd grown up watching as a kid, you know, watching on The Likely Lads and things, and and various things uh, through the years. But he he had quite a reputation for being awkward and being difficult, which I've always taken with a pinch of salt anyway because I, I've, I've often found that people who are described as difficult are just are lovely, you know, and they, they just need managing in the right way. Mm. So, but um, a quote I'd heard about James, um, the director I've mentioned, David Reynolds, that yes. first director I've ever worked with, well, James Boland described him as the least worst director he'd ever worked with. <laughs> <laughs> There's a quote so, and a half, isn't it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so you can imagine going in to direct this man, you know. Oh, where do you start? Yeah. So um, I thought this... I've got to crack this. It's got to be a kind of Waterloo moment here. So about a day into the shoot, um, we were doing a scene in a, in a hospital ward and it was James and Denise Welsh was, I'd cast as, as this woman in the, from the village who'd got pregnant again and it was, it was very dangerous for her to, to become pregnant. So we, we rehearsed the scene and, and James played it in a very sympathetic way you know that he, he was he was trying to be kind to her and to you know point out that she was um, she's putting herself in danger unnecessarily. And uh, I thought there's something wrong here. It's just not it doesn't feel right to me. Uh, so I went in and I said, look, James, I, I think we're you're being too sympathetic. I think you know this woman, you know her whole history, and yet she's still gone ahead and got got pregnant. And I think you would be angry with her. I think you would be telling her off for, for what she's done in order to try and save her life. Oh, I don't know. 
He said, I'm really not sure about that. I thought, ooh. You might have hit a nerve there. This is it. This is coming. And he, but he said, OK, let's give it a go. So uh, we rolled the cameras and uh, he did it and he was quite hard on her, you know. And it was fantastic. And I was sat there in my morning thinking, yes. Brilliant. It's fantastic. And we, and we cut and I said, yes, lovely, lovely. We'll do, a, a, there's some more setups to do, but that, I'm, I'm very happy with that. And, uh, and then James came up behind the set where my monitor was. It didn't say anything, but he came up and he just gave me a nudge on the arm with his... A knowing, a knowing nudge. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> it meant the world to me, you yeah. know, because it... You've cracked it. Yeah. Mm. It, and, and from that moment on, we got on like an absolute house on fire. I mean, it, you know. So, um, yeah, those those moments are are, are special. And, and for, fortunately, I haven't had many where I, I've kind of given a note and an actor's reacted in a very mm. negative way to it and refused to do it or anything. It's maybe once or twice in my whole career, you know. So, uh, but yeah, another another actor with a kind of fearful reputation was um, Jack Shepard. You know, um, I did a couple of series of uh, detective series called Whitcliffe that he was the lead in, and um, he again, you know, because he's a director in theatre and he's a very you know bright, very intelligent man, but but knows what he wants, you know, mm. doesn't suffer fools. So. I was in London doing my prep and the producer came in and he said, uh, we've got a real problem. One of the scripts, one of your scripts, Jack absolutely hates it. Um, he said, it's old fashioned story. It was about f finding buried treasure. It was a bit, you know, old fashioned mm. really. But he absolutely hates it. Um, and everyone's um, refused to, to shoot the episode as it stands. Oh gosh! Right, and he said, "I said, well, what, what does he? What, has he said what he wants from mm. it? You know, has he? Yeah, has he given you an alternative? Yeah. So um, he said, well, apparently uh, he wants it to be more modern as a story. And an example he gave was, I don't know if you remember, a few years ago they found four villains in a Range Rover that had all been shot in this Range Rover in Essex somewhere, and the police conclusion was they'd all shot each other." <laughs> 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 Obviously crazy, uh, yeah, yeah. All exactly at the same time, you know. The likelihood of it. One, two, three, go. Yeah, but that was, and that was Jack's example of how he wanted to modernise the story. Oh, okay. Thought, oh, right. So he's, he's, the, the producer said, right, you, you've got to go to Cornwall, because he's shooting down there already. You've got to get on the train, go down to Cornwall, and meet him and find out what we're going to do, you know. So I'd also heard that Jack had, Jack had this kind of, Theory about auras, uh, the color of people's auras. Oh, uh, I know. Have you heard this? Yeah, I have. Yeah. There I am, dispatched. I never met him. Mm. You know, dispatched to Cornwall on the train to meet him, and and I thought, well, I just hope my auras the right color. You know. <laughs> <laughs> did he Did he know you were coming? Yeah. Oh, he knew okay. I, was coming. Um, I met him in a pub which was next to his digs. It's a good start in a pub, I it suppose. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and we very simply and very quickly fixed the storyline. He was perfectly happy, and again we got along like a house on fire from then on. So, you know, the, when you hear of people being awkward and being difficult, I, I always feel make your own mind up, you know, because quite often, I'm sure it's true in in music industry and all sorts is. 
that it's often it's the people telling the tale that are the ones who have the problem rather than the yeah and they can know. blow it up to be a larger than life um you know representation of who they are when yeah. really they're just maybe a bit direct yeah and, yeah. yeah or or as, um, i mean somebody in, in the television industry has got who, who built a very uh, difficult reputation was jimmy nail um and i worked with him on spender uh, when i was still a first assistant and and you know we got on fine and that we got on very well but he, he you know he's a he's a difficult actor to deal with and i I had several chats with him about it, and he, he told me that he didn't ever feel he was a natural actor, and that the the whole process of of acting was actually quite painful to him, Gosh. almost physically painful. And I thought, well, now I know, I understand that. My approach to him is, is much more uh, uh, understanding of the process he's going through, and that he might lash out a bit, or he might be a bit angry about something, or... You know, I, I, one morning he turned up on a location um, ready to start shooting. And the grip had built what looked like the bridge over the River Kwai, a, a track uh, on a slopey bit of road. Mm. He'd been up there since five in the morning building this thing. Oh, wow. Jimmy turned up, looked at the location and said, I'm not shooting here, got in his car and drove away again. No. You know? and they'd been there all morning. Yeah, oh, you know, the whole crew's no. like, ah, oh, what do we do now, you know? So I knew, you know, it was awkward, but I found out that I got onto the BBC director's course while I was doing that job, and I, I told him, and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll write a piece for you, which was massively generous of him. Spender had been written by Ian Lafrenet and, and Jimmy Nell combined, and uh, he'd offered, he offered to write a piece for me, which he did. Um, and he came down to our little house when we lived in Marlow, and we sat and chatted, and... Uh, he brought his kids with him. They played with Gareth and Kate, my children, you know. And um, and then a week or so later, he, he delivered this piece, and it was really good. It was a, a studio-bound piece, three three-hander. Um, and I shot it as part of the course, one of the projects of my course. And then that gives you a kind of calling card for for searching for work when you first started out. And that got me my first job uh, on EastEnders as a director. Wow. So I owe Jimmy a lot, an awful lot. Yeah. Mm. And then, and then, of course, I worked with him on Alphidazine Pet, um, which was, you know, a legendary bit of television. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't even in television when it first came out, but you know, those two writers, uh, Ian Lafrenet and Dick Clement, who, who, again, I'd grown up watching their stuff back to, you know, um, the Lightly Lads and uh, uh, Porridge and all those. They're, they're absolute legends, those two. So to be working on scripts by them was just such a delight. And it was one morning out, we, we were shooting in the Caribbean. Um, and I, and Tim Spall had got a bit delayed by finishing a film in New Zealand. and he So we'd started all the scenes without him and then he joined. So my first scene with the Magnificent Seven, as they were known, um, was them fishing off the Malacom, which was supposed to be in... Um, uh, in Cuba so there, there they all were and Dick and Ian turned up as well just on a visit sat behind me with a monitor and hands on and yeah. I thought I've got legends here there you know. and they were over my and shoulder I, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure this is amazing yeah. this is amazing and there's me sitting amongst it calling the shots you know it was fantastic fantastic 
when you were transitioning um, out of, well, I suppose, into directing and you went freelance, was it a scary process of, you know, were you sure there was work to be had ahead, you know, with a young family? That's a, a conversation that I know a lot of young younger people my age that are in the freelance music yeah. end of things are, you know, always a bit daunted. Yeah. Was that a scary moment? Yes. I can't really be, you know, deny that it was any other way because I'd had a staff job at the BBC. So mm. even though the BBC pay isn't great, it, it, was, it was regular, regular. and, you know, yeah. yeah. I was, um, and I just swallow-dived out of it into a freelance career. Um, so, as I said, I was lucky enough to get those six-month contracts at, at um, Brookside, mm. which does help you, you know, obviously. Yeah. But during the, during the, the process, I was sending stuff out um, to other shows to try and get another gig, you know, mm. and was getting nothing back at all. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> what's going on? You know, here? the children were small. I had a mortgage, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, and I thought my ego has led me down this path. Mm. And uh, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Uh, I used to deal with it by. Get, I couldn't sleep, you know. I used to get up and um, get on my bicycle and ride round all the little country lanes around, around. To take your mind off. Yeah, to try and just, it, you know, yeah, take your mind off it and expel a bit of nervous energy and so on. Um, but what it did do was it gave me a fantastic drive. I had to succeed at it. I couldn't, there wasn't any way back. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I... I uh, not that I wanted to do, but but actually, practically, there wasn't. The BBC was changing. They were getting rid of all the production staff and the camera crews and costume makeup. They were all going, you know. So there wasn't any way back. I had to make a success of it. So it gave me that drive and the energy to, to really push, you know, to do it, which is hard to drum up at other stages in your life, you know. Um, but that that did at that time. I've got some pictures for you. Yeah. And they are of different uh, either projects you've worked on or shows you've worked on. If you could have a look at what the picture is yeah. and then tell me how you were involved in it. Or, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. First one. So, ah, oh, Holby City, yeah. So you'll notice in the director's box there's my name plus E. Lindley, which mm. is Emma Lindley. They were, I was a mentor. And I did several of these at Holby and, and, and at Casualty as well, where, as an experienced director, I was put in charge of an inexperienced new director. As a block of those shows, you do two episodes. So I would shoot one, and then the new director would shoot the other one, so they'd have a chance to watch me observe for, you know, the first episode, and then they would take over and, and do theirs. And um, so that was what that... That was was going on there, really. Emma, Emma's gone on. She's directing, you know, in her own right and doing very well. So fantastic. Yeah. Second one. Uh, that's up in Newcastle. Yeah, the um, the dumping ground award for best drama. Yeah, I, those kids, those kids are brilliant. Kia Peg um, has left the show now because obviously it's a children's show and you get to a certain age and you know you're, you're not in the old. house anymore yeah so she's now um gone on to be she's got a regular part in doctors so she's doing Brilliant. well this was 
few years ago now, and I went back and did one last year, and Jasmine is now like 16 and, and a grown up into a woman from mm. being a, 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 a tiny a, a top. Tire, top. Yeah. So that's that's strange, but um, that was good. It was lovely to win that, actually. It was a really nice award to win. I've actually got the uh, the speech given. Oh. It's the dumping ground. Kia knows him inside out, obviously, you know, from working with him all those years, and she would just feed him a little reminder and off he would go. It was lovely. It's wonderful. And mm. and do you feel as well when you're working on something for a long time that you do have an extended family yeah. of actors and crew? And... Very much so, yeah. Mm. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And I remember being bereft at the end of that first job. Um, I'd done every episode of Give Us a Break, 10 episodes or something, and it had taken us the whole summer to... to to shoot the the series, and then everybody just went well. Bye then, off their own way. Yeah, because that's that, they were used to it, and mm. it was the first time I'd done it. And I thought, no, you get you've got to come back. You know, where? yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. You get used to it after a while, but it's um, yeah, it is it, it is hard. You you get so close to people because you're there's such intense work. You know, there's long hours and emotional intense work. Um, not just with the actors, but with the crew as well. Um, you, it does bring you close, you know. Um, and, and it's one of the joys of the job, really, I think. I suppose the art allows you to connect on a more human or a deeper level quicker than you would if you were just meeting a, a random friend or yeah. making a new friend. Yeah. And that that's one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast is is cut to the, the deeper levels and chat about process and... and and all of that, but it must be hard to walk away sometimes at the end of a... Yeah, it is. It's, it's, yeah, you just have to be hard-nosed about it, you know, because it, it happens again and again. And then you, you hope that you'll work with, with people again in the future, which you do if you get the chance to, and, but sometimes you, you never see them again, you know. It's, mm. um, it's a very bizarre process sometimes. But Next up. So five minutes, yeah. So that was... Chizzy um, wrote this short um and asked me if i'd direct it and i i said yes i would um if 
and and Chizzy agreed, and she wrote it actually with Kate in mind, my daughter, who I believe is doing one of these. She'll be uh, here in a few hours, yeah. yeah. Um, because she was trying to get established as an actor, and she needed some showreel stuff. So I said, you know, if if she plays the the other the paramedic, Chizzy played a woman who was in a car crash and stuck in a car, and really the paramedic had to tell her she only had five minutes to live. And, you know, the, the whole premise of it is what would you do if you were told, you know, you only had five minutes. Um, uh, so, and we shot it all in a, in one day. It was it was really hard going. But um, with a pal of mine as a DOP, um, shooting it all on his Canon 5D. It was all very low budget. And, wow. You know, but we did get a car with a roof cut off and nice location uh, to shoot it in. Um, and and it's a good little film. It, it won an a, a accreditation in the um, the Buff Film Awards uh, Film uh, Festival. So Chizzy was happy with it, and um, it was good experience for Kate. So the next two are tweets, and these are people that you've been working with, and this looks like Casualty. Yes, that's. I remember that one very clearly because that the story was about a woman who was uh, an amputee uh, 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 and had fallen off a horse and um, was left kind of stuck in a field. And uh, George Rainsford's character was out running and found her in the middle of a field. Oh, wow. With, and, um, Lucky. Yeah. So that was the story. But I cast this this young actress, Steph Dimmock, who, who uh, um, was born with a fault to her right leg, which meant it had to be amputated. Oh, wow. And and when I first when I met her in the audition, I thought she knew the story. It was life, you know, her life really. Mm. And I thought if I can get a, a lovely performance out of her, I'm going to get something so honest and and true yeah. from it. So I cast her, and she was fantastic. It's true lived experience. Yeah, isn't it? Mm. yeah. And she was a little bit wooden to start with, but with notes and and bit of time and patience you know which you often don't have on a show like casualty but i thought i'll sacrifice something else in in, in just to help her and george was brilliant with her as well um and she she turned in a really moving performance and and i've kept um up with her news she's had a baby since and, and um and it's quite an inspiration for for people you know who are amputees so fantastic that's the story behind that one Another tweet. Yeah, Jimmy Akimbola. Well, I mean, he's in um, Bel Air now. It was called The Fresh Prince. The Fresh Prince, Prince. and this is the, the reboot of it. Mm. I'm with you. I've not and seen it, but he's yeah. He's one of the regulars in that. He, um, I worked with him when he was a, one of the regulars in Holby. Um, uh, he's a fantastic actor and a, and a brilliant guy. Um, but I, I had to do his first scene where he... he he, he turns up absolutely beside himself with anger. And I shot him, his arrival into the building without seeing his face at all. Just his feet, following his feet, and, mm. and uh, his finger stabbing at the lift button. And, Brilliant. And then eventually... And followed him out and then eventually reveal him. Uh, and it, it worked a treat. And that's, I think that's what that, that was referring 2011. To. First two episodes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, he's, he's he's a brilliant character, and and a lot of people don't realise he's because he's such a good character actor. Like he he was in Rev as well. He played a junkie in Rev. Oh wow! 
Um, uh, and he was, I, I watched, I don't know if you remember 2012, which, so it's quite a long time ago now, but it was like the, um, uh, well, uh, the committee that was supposed to be setting up the Olympics. Oh, oh no, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. It was it was a comedy. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, BBC Three. I think so. Something, yeah. Something like that. yeah. But Jimmy played the doorman in it. He would never let anybody in. <laughs> Great character. I saw about four episodes before I realised it was Jimmy, even though I knew him really well. No way. He was that such strong a character and so different from what he usually is. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So I love Jimmy to bits. It's brilliant. Final one. Yeah. Ah, so this is Kate, uh, her latest short film, The Traveller. Oh, I think it's just called Traveller, actually. I should get that right. <laughs> um, and um, she, she I, I, I'm just amazed, really, that um, she wrote it, she crowdfunded it, um, uh, and she's acting in it, uh, the main part in it, and she edited it herself as well. I recommended the DOP, this guy Peter Butler, I've worked with lots over the years and is a genius, a quiet Irish genius. He's a fantastic man. Because I thought they would get on and they absolutely did. They absolutely hit it off. And she um, she went against all advice of um, don't work with animals, children mm. and animals, you know, and got this horse. That, but he turned out to be the best actor of any, any of them. Stunning job. Absolutely <laughs> stunning horse. Fantastic. Tuko, the spotty horse, yeah. Yeah, and it's a lovely, lovely short, and I'm really proud of Kate for that, really. And, and I hope that it, um, it, it's, it's a good calling card for her. I, I, you know, if we can get her directing as well, I'd love that. I mean, I, I think her writing is her... That's the key difference between me and her. I, I've never written... Uh, I've always just directed other people's scripts, whereas Kate has got this a very strong writing style and has developed a very strong directing style as well so um the my long-term aim is or, or you know a goal really is to see her succeed as directing her own script which would be amazing how does it feel having had a career over the last four decades in this industry and you're now seeing your daughter Follow in a foot in some footsteps yeah. and find her own way. How does that feel as a as a dad? Well, I'm I, I, I'm stupidly proud of her really because she is very talented, much more talented than I ever was. So uh, she deserves to make it, and she will. I know she will. Um, it's just a it's. I've had some lucky breaks as as we've been talking about, you know. And she just needs a lucky break from somebody to say. I can see something in this girl, you know, let's uh, give her a chance. Um, and it'll come, it'll come because, you know, she deserves it really in, in the long run, I think. Um, so, yeah, I'm immensely proud and, and I don't know how much longer I'll keep going for. I mean, I could retire in three or four years. Whether I will or not is another thing. But if I can help Kate during my last years as, as a, you know, of working as a director, then I'll do everything I can really to get her going. That's amazing. Yeah. As we head towards the end of the podcast, if there was one bit of advice that you would throw in the direction of a new director or a young director, what would it be? I was told by an experienced director that you've got to have something you want to say. And I thought about it for years 
and years afterwards. And I thought, I remember at the time thinking, have I got anything to say? Mm -hmm. Have I got a burning issue that I want to say? And I realised after a few years of directing that I didn't really have any one specific thing I needed to tell the world, you know. Um, and that my career has, has been built up of interpreting other people's ideas or, you know, my own ideas, but via, you know, a good performance or, or, or something from a script. And I didn't actually, I was, that's my job as a director is to, is to be an interpreter. Not to, you know, I'm not writing the, the, the script. I'm not bringing my own, I'm trying to kind of subvert a story into something that isn't just to try and, you know, get some message across that, is, that I, so, you know, um, I think my main advice would be, are you a storyteller? That's the, that's the key to it. You've got to be, have a history of telling tall tales or, you know, it's, it's all, all the things I did as a kid, I realised are oh, what turned me into a director in my adulthood is loving listening to stories, telling telling stories. Um, uh, that, that's that's the key thing. So for me, it's um, it's the perfect mixture of uh, creativity because you know I'm not an artist. I I, I I can't draw and paint or or or, or anything like that. But there, there is a creativity in, in, in interpreting a script and, and, and uh, getting a, a, a fantastic performance out of actors. Um, but um, married with a great practical uh, skill as well. So you need to know your cameras, you need to know your lenses, you need to know how, how stuff can move, how, what, I, I think the, the key thing I've felt over the years as a bit of advice is, where do you want to tell the story from? Um, going back to what I was saying about uh, Edge of Darkness, that was the first time I'd seen a camera used with a long lens back way, way from the actors. Um, and the actors were just together uh, and talking to each other without any apparent interference. See what I mean? Even though yes. obviously it is all rehearsed, it's all set up and so on, but it looks like the scene was going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. And the camera just happened to be there and capture it. So it's a very observational kind of style. Um, and that was what I concentrated on when, in my early years of, of it. Um, and, and I've used again over the years, you know, gone back to that as a style. Or are you, do you want to tell the story as if you were a character stood within a scene and, and turning and observing and so on? And that... That puts your camera within the scene. See what I mean? Um, and it makes a, it makes a huge difference to the intimacy of uh, of how a scene plays. I mean, if you look at films, say like the Coen Brothers, the Coen Brothers, they are often they they're technically they're, the camera's right there in in the face of the actors. Um, but of course, on screen, they they they'll be playing a scene to a, a little cross or a dot on the map box because that's where the eye line looks like they're looking at the other actor. But the, the other actor is probably, you know, way behind the camera. You've got a camera, you've got the crew, you've got all that in between you and the, and the other actor. So it takes another type of skill as an actor to be able to be natural mm -hmm. 
act into a little dot stuck on the, the map box on the front of the camera. And it takes a great deal of skill for it as a director to be able to make sure that's all happening and, and keep the continuity throughout it yeah. all and yeah. then be able to communicate it to the audience as well. Yeah, yeah. As I've been doing my homework on you, uh, one thing that popped up and I didn't know what it was was something called Ned and the Windbangers. <laughs> What's this, David? <laughs> that, um, it's... It's yet to be complete, so I'm hoping that nobody steals it as an idea in the meantime. But I'll beep it out until it's uh, <laughs> until it's released. <laughs> it was um, it was initially as, a, as an idea for a children's novel, um, which I started to write, and, and I've structured it all out, so I know I know where it it should go, um, and I've written a couple of chapters, but then work and life has prevented me from completing it but I will do one day um, and it's again it's Kate Kate when she was about seven came to me and said dad I, I've got a friend I wish it was you'd think imagine where's this going yeah, know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then she, uh, she said um, no he's called Ned and, and he's a wind and he comes to my bedroom window and he takes me on adventures Wow. <laughs> and then you locked all of the doors. and <laughs> she's, she's always had this amazingly vivid imagination, you know. And I, So I wasn't worried at all that yeah. she had this, yeah. you know, imaginary friend because it was all lovely stories. All, That's beautiful. You know. So I thought I'll, I'll try and get it down as a, as a children's story. So Ned and the Windbaggers is the first... Story and the windbaggers are are uh, a pirate ship. It's set in sixteen mid mid sixteen hundred uh, because Ned magically can not only transport you through space but time as well. So okay. he he takes young Kate, the 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 little girl who's at the centre of the story, back to this pirate ship because they've worked out a way of capturing the world's winds into a like a, a huge bag on the back of the ship that's like a sideways on hot air balloon if you like uh, and they can just let enough air wind out of the bag to go wherever they want what <laughs> a useful guy to know that's amazing what a creative thought so, so he takes her ned takes her to uh try and help rescue all his friends the winds that, from this giant bag i love that yeah. I can't wait to read that. So there we are. That's that's it's yet to come. But as I say, I hope nobody steals it. But but uh, I, you know, there's all sorts of other stories that I thought I could explore after that. You know, uh, one I thought of was um, the that uh, Ned was responsible for telling all the stories to Shahrazad, so that uh... so that she could do the the Arabian Nights stories, you know, and sa save her own life. She didn't know the stories, but Ned was telling, telling them. The along good. The way. <laughs> oh, the genius! Yeah. So there's all sorts, and and I I wanted young the young girl at the centre of it was I wanted her to be a bridge between the natural world and and you know the human world, um, a bit of a kind of Greta Thunberg idea, really. That she you know she because she could talk to the winds via Ned. She had a direct line to to the natural world, you know, and could uh, 
could express what was going on in in terms of global pollution and you know uh, uh, global warming um so that was the long-term aim of it really and mm -hmm. that still applies you know mm -hmm. I, I don't think i've kind of missed the boat really in terms of that as a story so incredible yeah. david thank you so much for your time today not at all it's been mind-blowing hearing all sorts of stories Good. Good. uh uh and I can't wait as well to to read Ned of the Windbangers and see see your work on TV Fine. into the future. Fine. Oh well, yeah, yeah. There's one tonight actually. I I forgot to mention. I, I you know, I said I can't draw. Yes. Well, what I do is um, I use a, a a program called uh, Frameforge, which is a little 3D. I, um, I can send you this file so that you can use it Brilliant. in the edit if you want. But um, so. You can, you've got all the characters and the vehicles and and camera cameras that you can place wherever you need them, and you can build up the scene. So this is a a, a motorcycle accident that actually goes out on tonight's casualty. It hasn't Gosh. been shown on TV yet. It's going out this evening. So it's a young lad riding his bike. He gets uh, a it has a burn on his hand that he's bothered by as he's riding. Um, and he goes flying down this uh, industrial estate and then a huge tipper comes around the corner and he has to throw the bike over to avoid going underneath the front of it. Wow. And he skids across the ground and ends up in a big pile of uh, wiring. So this is allowing you to not only visualise and then put it out but you're you're able to get the right camera angle and yeah. then send this ahead to the exactly. team. The the whole point being, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. Really, I can give that to the crew and say, right, these are the shots that I need to do this sequence, and uh, we can then all stand around the storyboard and discuss the best way technically of achieving it. So you can get the logistics out of the way early and then focus on on the yeah. shots. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that's what I use. Uh, and I've done that, you know, there's there's not time to storyboard a whole episode or something, you know, but for the stunts particularly where they can be very time consuming if you don't know, you haven't got a proper plan, you know, so that's why I do them for that really. And um, and it gives you a good idea of the technical costs it's going to go into as well and whether the, the show can afford the budget for the things that you need. Because you need tracking vehicles, you need camera mounts for the bike, you need, you mm. know... Or, and particularly all the vehicles. I mean, that that dumper truck was on the location that we found, and we said, "Can we use it?" And they said, "Yeah, sure." It was massive, massive. Oh, perfect! Big, you know. Well, that was lucky. So, yeah, it was. It was. So I just said, "Right, we'll have that," and and, and we used it, and I put it in. So, um, yeah, that's incredible. And yeah. if you're listening to this rather than watching this at home, this is a cue to go and watch it on YouTube, so you can actually see what this this looks like. Yeah. I can send you that if yeah, you want brilliant. as a PDF and you could put it... I'll put it on the screen. On the screen. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. One closing tradition we do on the podcast yeah. is that a previous guest forwards a question to whoever the next guest is oh. going to be. <laughs> All right. Uh, and this is from Scott Edwards, who's uh, a YouTuber and a filmmaker himself. But he didn't know who this was going to. He said, what would you want it to say if someone were to write a book about you? Wow. Mm. Wow. I think the core of it would be, I, I feel that I've achieved much more than my ambition uh, 
was initially. Like I said to you, I, was, I wanted to be a theatre stage manager and I ended up as a film and TV director. I didn't know anybody in the industry. I, I didn't get a, a leg up from anybody or, you know. Um, uh, it's just, just to say, you can do it. From the outside, these industries can appear a bit, you know, uh, unapproachable and, and difficult to break into. But if you persevere and you're willing to make tea and brush the floor, you can do it, you know. And every director I've ever heard interviewed has, has said that they just nagged and they, you know, they broke in and they... Like Spielberg did it, didn't he? He he took out a, an office in the studio and sat in it until somebody said, "Oh, we need you for this," and he was off. You know, you've just you've just got to be dogged and and kind of determined, and and you'll make it. You can achieve it. Don't be overawed by it. Just go go after what you want, and uh, you'll achieve it. I think. I tell you something else. I just thought of as well. I used to define myself as a director I realize in my in my head that's what I was and then more recently I, I've realized that just a bloke who goes out and walks his dog and occasionally goes and does bits of television or filming and it's important it's a, it's a small statement but it's a very important difference that I'm not, you know, it's what you define yourself as. And, and I think it's dangerous to define yourself as your, what your career is. And not be just yourself. Very wise words to end the podcast. <laughs> I hope so. No, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> if you're still listening at home, thank you so, so much. Please do share, like, subscribe, and also get in touch because the more I hear from you at home, the more I'll be able to cater these interviews to be exactly what you want to hear and who you want to hear it from. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, remember to create with people, connect with people, and be exactly you. Peace.